0: My very great pleasure to um, ask Sir Brian to uh, address conference. Thank you.
1: Thank you very much, uh, President, and uh, good morning to conference. Uh, You're right, I was really proud of my uh, eight and a half years as Chair of Council and Pro-Chancellor and had really warm associations with U.S.A. and the members on the council during, during that period. So I was very grateful you honoured me in making me an honorary vice president. Uh, I see that uh, the, the minister, uh, Bill Rammel has just arrived, and he'll have missed the little crack earlier on where uh, uh, the, uh, it was decided that the conference would be captured on video, and I think there were some thoughts that on video might be removed in your case. <laughs> but... Uh, 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 Bill and I served together on Britain in uh, Europe, and uh, despite the very big disagreements we have, and which I'll allude to in a moment, uh, I have to say that, uh, you know, he and I had good relations there, uh, and nothing personal in anything I may say, uh, Bill. Uh, I think he probably finds himself in a rather difficult position as a former uh, president and general manager of a student's union, so he knows exactly what to expect. Uh, (laughs) The, we have had our ups and downs. I remember when I came in as, uh, as chair of council uh, that we were in one of those downs where there was financial pressures and all the usual issues that come out of that. And that's been quite a feature and is a feature of all sorts of organizations, uh, whether they're in the university sector or, or elsewhere. Uh, and I have to say, in fairness, uh, that over the last decade of this government, generally, policies have been helpful rather than unhelpful to us. But of course we are facing uh, a serious crisis. I mean the ELQ uh, issue, which is the only one, as I've only got a few minutes I want to speak to, uh, is uh, a major issue for the university and I would suggest also a major issue in terms of national uh, policy. Uh, I did find it rather astonishing, as I'm now rather distant from this and out of the the day-to-day game, so I probably don't understand all of the detail, uh, that uh, this particular government should have chosen this particular action. And I must join, as I know you have done, and others, in condemning the policy as misconceived and ill-thought-out. Uh, I've sat on numbers of bodies, chaired things, and no doubt have made my own mistakes in, in my time. But one of the great laws is the law of unintended consequences. Uh, God save us from people whose intentions are good, but whose actions turn out to the opposite. So this is, I think, what's what's happened here. Because the government policy is a policy I think we all supported: uh, opening of access. All of those good things are entirely ones that this community of people would support. So when the the government acts in a way that goes against that, your eyebrows go up. And indeed, there's been rare unanimity against it. And I noticed, because I had a little briefing note, that the select committee had 500 submissions, and very rarely, hardly any of them, were in favour of the policy. And the select committee's conclusions were uh, that... It concludes that the government's decision to cut funding to students studying for the same or lower qualification quotes insufficiently justified either persuasive analysis of its likely effectiveness in achieving the desired goals or evidence of the likely wider impact of the policy. We saw no convincing evidence that part-time students would gain from the redistribution of funds away from ELQ students. In a way, I could stop there because that's 500 submissions nearly all uh, saying that. One of the things I would uh, appeal to government on this, and I've been involved in this because I got involved in governmental things over a number of years, uh, and that is decisions which are clearly complicated and which clearly have all sorts of different consequences as you move funding around, where you have a success here and you're trying to move them to achieve other policy objectives, do require pre-consultation and non-occurred. I mentioned the question of good intentions, and I don't doubt that the government are trying to achieve a sensible objective in enabling more people to enter higher education, a policy I've always uh, myself supported. But the difficulty is, in shifting funds, 100 million, which in the noise level of government expenditure is tiny, it's very difficult to be able to track that given the government's track record already in failed initiatives in this area, to a new policy that might help whilst in, in the present seriously damaging a policy hours, which is working. But I think that rather than, uh, rather than get angry about it, I think we have to argue the case. And that was what was done in the submissions. And I think the the points that really stuck in my mind when I was reading up about this uh, are the attitude of the select committee and all the people who were consulted. The fact that only 12% of ELQ students uh, are supported by employers, uh, and of course the policy works on the principle this will widen. It will actually alter our student mix. It won't be the same people because, of course, particularly smaller employers and others are not going to be able to fund this. They've already got a serious number of other things that are attracting cost burdens on them. Also, of course, think of how many of you and others out there are doing this to reskill, to change your job. You can't actually go to your employer and say, I want to leave, please pay for me to leave so I can study. It's not going to happen. Also, of course, remember... That The concept that you simply have to go up a stage in the qualification level isn't valid. The whole thrust of government policy, and the correct one, is the reskilling of the workforce. So you may have a level of qualification here that works today, but doesn't work in the future. So you should be uh, supported in getting that done. And finally, and there are many other arguments, of course, is the argument that affects women. This policy discriminates more against women than against men, particularly career breaks, women returners and so on. And again, a policy I've always supported by the government is eliminating that. Why encourage it now? Now there are some (laughs) there are some positives. There are some positives. It is clear that the government is uncomfortable with the policy. They only have to look at the number 10 website and find that we're up to number 5 to realise the depth of feeling. So the government has been shifting its line. So one must acknowledge acknowledge that. Uh, Also, of course, Hefke, within the policy framework, have endeavoured to be as helpful as they can. And indeed, uh, the really serious damage occurs only by 2011-2012. And this this lovely phrase by Hefke, that they won't allow the Open University to go off the cliff. Of course, they push us in the direction of the cliff just to pull us back before we go over the edge. A very strange act of policy. Uh, I think it's quite an ironical situation, and indeed my guess is that if the government can find other alternatives that ensure we aren't damaged, then this is what will take place. I, I doubt... That this policy will last. Uh, we, we know that by the time we come to 2011-12, uh, Bill will either be out of government, promoted or in another department. Uh, times will march on uh, and there'll be another look at the situation because I'm sure government in the end doesn't want to see the OU go in the wrong direction. I think that uh, uh, Brenda and, uh, uh, and the, uh, the, the VP and everybody else there have done a very good job in putting the points across. I think that, President, uh, all of you have been extremely important. I mean, you do have genuine political muscle in your constituencies. Uh, there are very, very large numbers of you connect to people who will feel strongly uh, about this, uh, this issue, uh, and I do urge you uh, to use that political muscle. You have the best arguments, and you should get on and use them. Thank you.
0: believe this is the first time we have had a minister come and actually speak at UNUSA conference Um, and I would like you to welcome him um, to address conference. Thank you very much.
2: Lisa, um, conference, good morning. Um, One of the things I I guess part of my Uh, make-up as a politician is, I believe, very strongly in being accountable and answerable for the decisions uh, that I take. Uh, And that's why I was very pleased to receive your invitation and to come here uh, this morning. I'm hopefully not going to talk for too long, so we can have a good opportunity for questions uh, and answers. Uh, In fact, in remembering the need for brevity, I'll try to remember something that poet Shelley once said when describing a politician saying that he had lost the ability to think, but unfortunately not the power of speech. Um, (laughs) I hope that's not the view you take of politicians by the time I I finish speaking. But I think it would be uh, an exaggeration to claim that the Open University's relationship with the government in general and my department in particular has been strained over the last few months. Uh, But there's certainly, and I would acknowledge this, there has been a tension and the cause of that I don't think is hard to find. It is our decision, and and Brian has already referred to it this morning, It is our decision to redistribute some of the public funding for ELQ students towards uh, more first-time entrants. I think that is a pity, a pity because, and I say this very strongly, the emotional links between the Open University and my party, the Labour Party, the party that created the Open University 40 years ago, remains very strong. A pity as well because the Open University is, and rightly so, such a prominent landscape ...landmark in the British higher education system that we ought to, I think, have more and more important things to discuss than just one single issue. I know that ELQs will rightly be an unavoidable issue for us today, but the main thing that I want to do, if I can, is to set the ELQ policy in context of the government's wider education and skills ambitions... What place we see in higher education for older learners, for part-timers, for people in employment and for distance learners. And what I think the Open University can and must do to contribute to making our ambitions become a reality. Now, as Shakespeare almost said in Julius Caesar, I come to praise the Open University, not to bury it. Uh, I want to praise it not only because of its past record in genuinely providing opportunities for millions of learners without formal qualifications to benefit from higher education, but also, rightly, because of its forward plans to meet the challenges of the 21st century, working in partnership with HEFKE and the BBC to name just two organisations. Now, what are those challenges. Sandy Leach's review of skills has set us the task of equipping at least 40% of adults with graduate level skills by the year 2020. And just to put that in context, the United States, Japan, Canada, Israel and the Russian Federation are already at that level of graduate qualifications. That's about 10% higher than where we are at the moment. At the same time, demographic changes mean that universities' traditional intake of 18-year-olds will decline after the year 2009. Three quarters of our 2020 workforce have already today left school. The implications, I think, of all of that are not hard to see. We are going to need to get many more mature people into higher education over the next decade, certainly if we are to be socially and economically competitive. You, I think of all people, well know what that means. It is just not good enough expecting large numbers of adults with careers, with families or mortgages to behave like 18-year-olds and go off to universities full-time for three or four years. It's just bluntly not going to happen. Now, for most of the 171 higher education institutions in this country, the consequences of all of that, I think, are going to be very challenging. They're going to have to enter what is, for most of them, very unfamiliar territory, dealing with older, possibly more demanding and certainly as a general rule, more discerning students, educating more part-timers and more students who aren't just part-time but who undertake most of their learning in the workplace or at home, people who want the institution to fit around their needs and circumstances rather than the other way around. Coping with a more varied student body in terms of age, ethnicity, social background, prior qualifications, personal circumstances, and individual aspirations. Embracing closer involvement by students' employers, not just in the funding of higher education, but in designing and delivering it as well. I could go on, but I'll stop there and just ask you whether any of that sounds at all familiar. Of course it does. It's the sort of learning and the sort of student population that the Open University was first set up to deal with over 40 years ago. It's the sort of higher education from which over 200,000 students are getting from this university every year. 80,000 of them do not have prior qualifications usually needed to go onto a conventional university course. 140,000 of them are in full-time employment. And to date, over 50,000 employers have sponsored their staff to take Open University courses. Now, we want and need much more of this type of provision, in which employers, institutions, and the government, through the Funding Council, sit down and work out how we can ensure that more of the workforce acquires higher levels of education and higher level skills. That's not something that's entirely new. The Open University is a national asset, as well as, I believe, a national treasure, and it does some things on a scale which no other university in this country could do. In those areas, it is important, I think, that it works together with other national bodies like the Funding Council so that it reaches even more adults who have untapped potential and could benefit from higher-level qualifications. And I'm pleased with what is now happening. The government is calling on universities to take a much more flexible approach to qualifications because, bluntly, I think that is what is needed. The Open University virtually invented the ladder of qualifications, from basic foundation units to full honours credits, which adults can climb at their own speed and as they want and as it suits their circumstances to do so. The government is also calling on universities to develop closer links with schools, There are schools that offer bright teenagers open university credits alongside their A-levels as an extension activity. Only a few uh, weeks ago at Leaven Fork School in Hertfordshire near my uh, constituency, I presented open university certificates to sixth formers. We also want to increase the number of STEM graduates, science, technology, engineering and mathematics, which is why they are treated differently under the ELQ rules. Here again, the Open University, I think, is helping us to take this policy policy forward through uh, innovative uh, ways that it delivers courses and enables STEM students to access excellent teaching. I'm not saying that the Open University, too, won't have to change in some ways and move with the times. Every organisation has to do that but I am absolutely insistent that this creation of the idealistic 1960s has an enormous amount to offer the harder-edged, globalised, competitive world of the 21st century in which we live. Now, I think everyone at the Open University knows this, but the connection some seem to have missed is the fact that in these circumstances, the government, I think, would have been completely mad to do anything that genuinely endangered this institution which brings me to what boxing promoters call the main event. Many of you will have heard the arguments about ELQs before, both in relation to the principles, but also what it will mean for the Open University. I'm not going to say that some have made a mountain out of a molehill, but I really do think it is important to set what we are doing in a wider context. This is bluntly not a cut to the funding of higher education. It is a redirection of funding, Overall funding for higher education has gone up and will continue to go up. By 2010, this country will be spending 30% more in real terms on higher education than we were 11 years ago. Compare and contrast that with the 36% real terms cut that took place between 1989 and 1997. And Brian, I think very welcomely you alluded to the fact of the better financial environment for higher education over the last decade. So it's not a cut. Nevertheless, why are we making this change? I think the numbers tell a story. 20 million people in this country do not have a first higher education qualification. Half of them are women, a quarter of them are over 50, and a quarter of them have a disability. Over 2 million are from ethnic minorities. They're also much more likely to come from less well-off backgrounds. These are rightly, in my view, priority groups who will have more opportunities as a result of the ELQ policy, especially the 6 million adults with A-level or equivalent qualifications who at the moment do not progress on to higher education under the current system. And we need to make a start in offering them that opportunity from this September. The majority are also likely to be mature learners from non-traditional backgrounds who want to study part-time students very much like yourselves. In other words, they are exactly the sort of potential learners a Labour government had in mind when it first created the Open University. If Harold Wilson and Jenny Lee had not been confident that millions of adults without formal qualifications had the talent to benefit from going to university, the Open University would never have been built, and none of you would be sitting in this room today. In exactly the same way, this Labour government took the ELQ decision, first of all, as a matter of principle, and on the grounds of fairness and social justice. The ELQ policy simply sharpens the incentives in the system for universities to produce more of them to match our economic competitors. An extra 5 million people will need to go through university by 2020 if we're to achieve the skills base that Sandy Leach outlined and which we need to aspire to. As I said earlier, countries like the United States and Japan have already reached that level and they are not going to stop. Leach's review not only set out the challenge but was also clear about the priorities for funding and I think it was the right approach. The higher the qualification, the greater level of individual or employer contribution that is necessary. He argued that that was fair and I believe that to be the case given the benefits for individuals and employers who gain higher level skills And those principles are being applied across the adult education system. Of course, we value those who have already got a first higher education qualification and who want to retrain for a different subject. And there should be opportunities available for them, for example, through foundation degrees, employer co funded provision, and in some cases, career development loans. And I think it's important to make clear as well, and this hasn't always come out in this debate, that we are only redistributing about 30% of the £325 million we currently spend on ELQ students. We will still be spending more than £200 million a year on ELQ students by 2010, not least to support many of them to do subjects such as the STEM subjects, which is strategically important to this country. Those with a first degree earn, on average, £100,000 more after tax over the course of their working lifetime than those with just A-levels. That financial return and we should be proud of this, is amongst the highest in the advanced world, and what is more, it gets higher as people get older. There is no evidence that qualifications obtained years ago lose their value in terms of what employers are prepared to pay for graduates. Against that background, the system is not, and is deliberately not intended to be, and has never intended to be, as generous as regards public funding as it is for those people who have yet to obtain a degree. And I have to say... Uh, as, as well, that I've been deeply concerned about some of the misleading figures which have banded, been banded about, about what this change actually means for the Open University. And let me be clear what I'm saying. Firstly, the Open University's share of the amount being redirected is nothing like the £30 million figure, which has appeared in some of the letters that have been put to me. It will be £3.8 million pounds this year, and increased by a similar amount in the following two years. £3.8 million pounds a year might sound a lot, but it's actually about 1% of the total income that the Open University now generates each year, over half of which we prov- provide through the Higher Education Funding Council grants. The Open University already raises over £120 million pounds a year in tuition fees and has over £100 million pounds in reserves. Rightly, it is one of the biggest beasts in the educational jungle. Far from its grant from HEFKE being cut by £30 million This year, the Open University actually received an increase of over £4 million and it gained explicitly from the withdrawal of ELQ students from the allowance for widening participation. Looking specifically at the ELQ element of Open University funding, we have explained on a number of occasions that this means that if it recruited, if the Open University recruited another 3,000 part-time students in each of the next three years, it would recoup completely its share of the £100 million that is being redirected. For an institution with over 200,000 students, I believe that ought to be manageable. And also, with the changes that we have made, we've made it explicitly clear that we will prioritise those institutions that lose out through the ELQ funding in in terms that they will be the major beneficiaries of the additional growth for first-time entrants. And that is the context in which I think we need to see the ELQ policy. It's not a question of stealing from the poor to give to the rich or taking money away from older learners in order to give it to younger ones. It's not even a redistribution of wealth from the haves to the have-nots in any meaningful sense. What it does rather represent, I think, is a redistribution of opportunity. And if that is not what the Open University thinks it ought to be about, then I think something has gone terribly wrong. The changes that we are making won't disadvantage anyone sitting in this room, and there's no reason why what is, at the end of the day, a redirection, not a cut, has to disadvantage this institution. The ELQ policy, I think, is a challenge, but a challenge that can be met. The Government, the Funding Council and Ministers personally are all willing to help the Open University to come to terms with it and find the right way forward. And I want to say publicly today that I very much welcome the steps it is already taking to work with us and the Funding Council in some of the areas that I've mentioned. To help the the Open University be as worthy of the mission for which it was created in the next 40 years as it has been for the last 40. And I can tell you today that this help is already being given. Higher education is changing, and the Open University can do more than simply change with it. I think the Open University should be leading this process of change. It should be showing the rest of the sector how to reach out with new kinds of courses to new groups of learners and to support them through new kinds of learning experience. Now, I normally spend my Saturdays in my constituency in Harlow helping constituents with problems, and with the local elections being less than a week away, there are more reasons than usual why I probably should be in Harlow today. I hope, nevertheless, the fact that I'm here in Milton Keynes gives some indication of just how great a force the Open University can be in 21st century higher education and the importance that I and the government attach to it. And also of just how tragic I think it will be if the Open University doesn't rise to the challenge and live up to that role. I've already called the Open University a big beast. Everyone who cares and admires for this place, as I genuinely do, I think has to be careful not to let the big beast become a dinosaur. I was having a look at your website the other day, and I found some words there that I think I sum up, to me, sum up the attitude that I'm talking about. And they're your words, Lisa, uh, as president of this student union. You write, I'm going to lead this organisation to a future where it is stronger, where it is more relevant to thousands of the students it represents, and where it is more confident that it sits full square in the 21st century, rather than being afraid of leading the 20th century. I think that is the right approach for your association. I also think it's the right approach University. Can I thank you for listening to me? Can I thank you genuinely for your commitment to higher education? And I'm happy to be here to answer some questions. Thank you.
0: Thank you very much. As you've just mentioned, we're not letting you away just yet. Um, We have a number of questions um, and if I could Call upon the if the people that I have listed, if they could um, raise their hands and make themselves known to the roving <coughs> mics. Okay, um, could I take the first question from Alex Hamilton, please?
2: Good
1: morning, Minister. Uh, Following up uh, from Sir Brian Nicholson's uh, pithy comments uh, about the ELQs, why should a student with a 20-year-old degree? Uh, be discriminated against when trying to reskill to fit a modern working environment.
2: Okay. Um,
0: could we have a question from uh, Ros Evans, please?
3: Good morning, Minister. Um, with the emphasis that the government is placing on employer-sponsored qualifications. What safeguards do you intend to put in place to ensure that female employees do not suffer discrimination with the ubiquitous glass ceiling?
0: Okay, and uh, Sandra Summers. Good morning. Yeah. I'm over here. <laughs> I'm here. I, got you. Uh, I want to ask about funding for part-time students uh, not just ELQ students. We do recognise that uh, since 1997, the Labour government has improved funding for part-time students, but we're still a long way from equal status with full-time students. Uh, So are there any plans to address this unequal and unfair situation for funding for all part-time students?
2: Okay. Okay. Let me try and answer those three. In terms, of Alex, of uh, a student who's got a degree uh, that's 20 years old. Firstly, and, and you know, the, the, uh, the pay evidence does back this up. There is no evidence that over time the value of a higher education qualification decreases. In fact, uh, the reverse uh, of that. Um, I also think, you know, when you talk about discrimination, I think we need to acknowledge that the way the system has been operating up until now actually discriminates. against people who haven't yet got their first degrees because that is funding that is going to people with second degrees that could actually be used for people who've yet to get to that stage and I have to say although I'm willing to engage with this debate and and I I was conscious of what Brian said at the beginning about ministers being uncomfortable I may be wrong but I'm not uncomfortable with the decision I fundamentally believe that putting the interests of first-degree learners before those who've already got a degree. It's right in terms of educational policy, it's right in terms of social justice, and it's right in terms of the economic outcome. But that is not a message that says there is no opportunity for people to reskill. I reiterate the point that we are only redirecting a third of the ELQ funding. There will still be significant opportunities by way of foundation degrees, by way of employer co-finance provision, and also by way of a significant number of exempted subjects, particularly the STEM subjects. And what we've additionally said, rightly so in my view, is that we will review every year that list of exempted subjects because over time the importance of those subjects may change. Now, Ross, the question about women, if you look at the evidence, the proportions of women presented within the ELQ category is exactly the same as the proportion of women who have yet to get a first degree. And I think the real challenge for us is to how we ensure that many more women who've yet to get their first degree are actually able to do so. But nevertheless, In terms of the glass ceiling, it is something we are very concerned about, which is why we're currently uh, planning an equalities bill to go through uh, the House of Commons. It's why this government as well rightly brought in measures such as parental uh, leave and increased maternity uh, provision uh, to try and help in that situation as well. Finally, Sandra, on part-timers, and and you very welcomely acknowledge that. Look, you know, before this Labour government came to power, there was absolutely no support available for part-time students. We are a government that brought in the the first part-time student grant two years ago, and it was my decision. We increased the value of that by 27%. We also increased the access to learning fund from three million to 12 million pounds, but. We are not, and I think it would be wrong, to simply replicate the full-time student support package for part-timers. And I say that because however much additional money we're putting into higher education, and this government is putting in unprecedented amounts of extra funding into higher education, we need a sharing of the responsibility, particularly with employers, where we bluntly get more employers to put their hands in their pockets and to pay for the people who work for them to fund a higher education qualification. When you look at the evidence... 42% 42% of part-timers are already supported by their employers. I think it would be wrong to simply roll out the full-time student financial support package to them and then just see those employers who we want to encourage to do more then cutting back on the commitments that they're already making. Uh,
0: the next series of questions. Um, Carol Brooks. If you could stand up, it would help. <laughs> Good morning, Minister. I am a postgraduate student. I am an unemployed postgraduate student who is also studying at undergraduate level for very much the reasons in the following question. Many ELQ students study at an equivalent or lower level to expand their skills, or simply because postgraduate course fees are exorbitant. Will there be an increase in funding for those studying for a higher degree? Dan Glover. If you could stand.
1: Uh, Good morning. Uh, All students of the Open University, uh, regardless of the number of points being studied per year, are classified as part-time. As part-time students, we're not eligible for student loans. Does the Minister intend to address this issue and create... A more equal situation for part-time students.
0: And uh, Donald Hedges. See here. Donald not here. No, George McFarlane.
4: Again, Minister. Well. I think we all accept and we all welcome the <coughs> additional funding that the government has put into higher education since 1997, helping to sort of recover the situation from the previous decade of underfunding. However, if the Open University statistics and figures are so grossly wrong, as the government are saying, but we actually prove to be right, will the government actually refund the money that the university loses? Let let, let me
2: deal with that last point first. No, 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 let me deal with it. And, you know, with respect, I do think the people and the lobbying organisation that the Open University paid for to put out some of this misleading information needs to answer that question. Because, actually, we're into the first year of the redirection next year. And your budget has not been cut. It's gone up. Right? Right? And, you know, there's all these figures being banded about, about a £30 million cut to the Open University, and it is simply not happening. The figures I quoted to you are, in terms of the ELQ decision, £3.8 million a year, right? And that is before you've taken any account of the opportunity to gain the additional growth for first-degree entrants, those mature adults in the workplace and out of the workplace, who can benefit from a first higher education qualification. If the Open University, given its history, given its track record of targeting mature students, cannot deliver that kind of change, then it's not the kind of institution that I believe it to be. But as I say, people need to justify the figures they put out. Your budget is not being cut next year, it's going up. Secondly, Carol, postgraduates. We are are certainly not cutting off opportunities for postgraduates. This is about... Uh, first-degree uh, qualifications, uh, and, you know, in terms of postgraduate opportunities, particularly, I have to say, within uh, the, the, the STEM field, have gone up significantly over the last decade, and we want to see that uh, continue. And finally, Dan, in terms of your question, uh, I think it's a bit similar to Sandra's question previously. I mean, we did bring in the first student grants. We've increased them by 27%, and I made the point that simply rolling out this full-time student financial support package I think would be the wrong way forward. However, of course as a government we keep these issues under review and in terms of the overall structure uh, of funding higher education uh, with the new system of fees, we've committed ourselves to a review of the whole system uh, in 2009 and clearly part-timers is one of the issues that will be looked at.
0: Thank you very much. We'll let you go. <laughs> Alright. Thank you very much.
5: Thank you. Thank you.
0: Okay, motion 159. Could I have a mover, please? Lisa Carson, President. Despite the words of the Minister, the ELQ issue was foisted upon us out of the blue. It was foisted upon us on the whole of the higher education sector, And we weren't prepared for it. The students, the university, nobody. It was important that I took whatever action was necessary at the time, despite the fact that we had no policy at the time. We couldn't wait till conference because obviously, you know, we're a little bit further down the line. It's been important that we've acted Worked with the university, but with the students in mind at every point, and made sure that we've campaigned with the students, and particularly part time students, in mind all the way through. The reason I want you to accept this motion is to put something, put this in our register of decisions to show that the conference has agreed that we have a stance on this particular issue. I would hope that nobody's going to dispute that we need <laughs> a policy on this issue. It's not going away. We don't know what else they're going to pull out of the bag, unfortunately, either. The, the minister just spoke about the Open University being a national asset and a national treasure. It's our asset and our treasurer. Treasure, it's our university, and I believe it's important to each and every one of us. The Minister also said that it didn't affect anybody in this room. <laughs> I haven't quite figured that one out yet. Um, to me, it affects everybody in this room, and not only for, for our, our personal education, but for the education of those that follow. The reason that this Students' Association works so hard within the university to represent the views of the students isn't for our own personal gain. In fact, we're the very people that it's unlikely to affect immediately, but we're always working for the students that are going to follow us. For that reason, if no other, it's important that you support this motion. Um, I've I've worked very hard on this particular issue. um, And as as the Vice-Chancellor has said at Senate and Council, she doesn't remember life before ELQ. I I have sympathised and empathised and fully understand how she feels. It has been all-consuming. It has taken it has taken the university some time to address but it's also something that this university is working on we need still, but we still need to fight the policy thank you do I have anyone against the motion? I have to ask sorry Can we? Yeah. Okay. Uh, another, yeah.
4: Yeah. another, animal for George? George McFarlane, member of the University Council. I'm actually quite glad the minister has left the hall, because although my previous question I think sort of flummoxed him a little bit, uh, he obviously doesn't really know who he's talking to when he's talking to a group of OU students. We're not stupid. We actually know the facts these cuts are going to happen. We know they're going to happen. Council are fully opposed to this policy and remain opposed to this policy, no matter what Bill Rammel says. And as to the fact that nobody in this room is affected, I think Mr Rammel is in his own little room and is protected from society and sanity. (laughs) However, let's make it clear, this policy, if it's not overturned, will hurt our university, not his university, not the government's university, not the nation's asset, our university, our studies, our future. Support this motion and let's send an even stronger message to the government that we think we've got it wrong.
3: like to speak on this motion
0: ok we'll move to the vote all those in favour of 159 any against clearly carried I've worked extensively with um, with Professor Gourley this year addressing the issues around ELQ um, and it, it's It's been a hard slog, but we've survived so far. So um, I'd welcome her to. I'd I'd like to ask her to um, come and address conference for us. Thank you.
3: Well, thank you very much. Uh, I must say I am delighted to be here. I'm always pleased to be uh, with students of the Open University, but it's particularly comforting uh, at the moment to be with people who seem to understand the implications of ELQ policy. Um, And I might be pleased to be here this afternoon, but I have to say I thought I was going to have a stroke this morning listening to the minister. So um, quite apart from the fact that I feel as if my, uh, my very integrity is being impugned in a very public kind of way, I'm astonished to think that the Minister believes that we are making a mountain out of a molehill. When funding is going to cease for approximately 29,500 students, that doesn't seem like a molehill to me. And it's not going to be a molehill for the students either. Furthermore, I am in no doubt whatsoever that the mitigations that we have been able to secure, and there have been some, uh, to be scrupulously fair, Um, have been made precisely because we've made such a fuss. Um, So I don't apologize for that. Uh, My colleagues and I were simply doing our job, which I have to say has been uh, rather more difficult than usual. The minister, too, is doing his job, of course, uh, although he seems to be doing it with no lack of enthusiasm. I think we should be encouraged by the Commission of Inquiry report into the ELQ affair and encouraged particularly to work towards the implementation of the recommendations in that report. It seems that governments can ignore their own committees of inquiry at will uh, and that should not go uh, unremarked. So there's unfinished business there. Now, your president and her executive have been absolutely magnificent in their opposition to the, the, the policy, and I'd like to pay particular tribute to them. Thousands of our students, you uh, students, have vigorously uh, written uh, to their MPs signed the uh, petition on the government's website, and all sorts of other things. And I think we're all in their debt, and I pay them tribute as well. Now, the war is not over. There's a certain battle that wasn't won, but the war is not over. Uh, the Secretary of State, John Denham, has launched a review into higher education, and as part of that review, a uh, there's a review of part-time education. Uh, Professor Christine King, who is the Vice-Chancellor of the University of Staffordshire, will be chairing that review and one hopes that there will be the opportunity for input uh, with rather more visible results than the inquiry. I could say more on this issue. Uh, Your your, uh, organisers have limited my time, so I'm going to leave it to the question time if there is any and then we can focus on issues that uh, particularly concern you. I do want to spend a few minutes on an issue which is very dear to my heart, and that is uh, volunteering, rather outside what we've been talking about up to now. You'll know that the Open University is the signatory to a declaration which has become known as the Tower Declaration, uh, named after the place where we actually signed it, and that's a declaration which committed universities to civic engagement in general and particular projects uh, specifically. And I want to add here that the group of vice-chancellors, rectors, and presidents that came from all over the world, uh, 27 different countries, I think, uh, to sign that declaration did not at once imagine that open and distance learning students would involve themselves in such a project. I vigorously disabused them of that view, and the student leaders themselves added their voices to mine, and indeed the conference eventually supported that. It's taken some time to get our act together, but we are now supporting a special worldwide project which, which supports the Millennium Development Goals on literacy and have joined hands with a variety of organizations which make literacy the focus of their work. That includes, in the UK, the National Literacy Trust as well as others, and it's important this year particularly because this year is the National Year of Reading with all sorts of events planned to encourage more reading and help those who cannot read at all, of which there is still a shameful number in a a country such as this. So today I want to encourage you to join hands in this effort uh, which can benefit even from very small amounts of your time. You know what they say, if you want uh, to get something done, you ask busy people. OU students are busy people, and I'm quite sure they'll be able to carve out some of their time to help in this respect. My hope is that many organisations, like the National Literacy Trust, will begin to notice the power of OU students when they join hands in such endeavours. Your president has launched a a review of USA's goals and purposes, and I think that's most admirable. I'm sure she didn't expect her words to be used by the minister to bang us on the head. Um, We, as a university, will support that review in every way, and we look forward to the outcomes. In conclusion, I'd like to say that the Open University is considered, as you well know, a leader in open and distance learning. That is no small matter, and it's certainly not something that we take for granted. We're now also considered a leader, even the leader, uh, in the open educational resource movement, and our OpenLearn site is receiving about 2 million unique uh, visitors uh, every year. More is to come as we work on our successor site. The Student Support Review uh, has recommended a whole lot of improvements to the support that students presently receive, and many of those improvements will be implemented sooner rather than later. This is neither a complacent institution nor, indeed, one that harks back to the 20th century, as the Minister seemed to suggest. We do not wear our. uh, We we are not resting on our laurels. We understand perfectly well that if we did that, we'd be wearing them in the wrong place. (laughs) I do believe it's an institution, and you can look at the OU Futures document to give you a flavour of it. But I do believe it's an institution that is fully deserving of its preeminent place in the higher education community, and I do believe that it's staffed with people who have almost missionary zeal. Uh, uh, and commitment to the uh, four Opens that make us special. And, of course, you students continue to spur us on uh, as we listen to some of the motions that you've passed. Uh, Today we will be uh, looking at those and and trying to understand them more and respond to them, and we welcome that in every way possible. So in conclusion, um, students, uh, thank you for being here and thank you for your attention.
5: Um, greetings, friends. Let me first start by apologising that Gemma tumulty uh, the National President, cannot be with us today. Uh, you lumbered with me instead. Uh, I'm Richard Budden. I'm the NUS National Secretary. I studied at Canterbury Christchurch University College, uh, and I convened the NUS Mature Students Campaign. It was at the start of the mo- this month that NUS gathered in Blackpool to start our own annual conference, um, one that was eventful, to say the least. Uh, constitutional changes a new education policy, as well as reports of a student movement divided. We may have been divided on policy debates, but when conference is said and done, we come together as a united movement to defend and extend the rights of students, and that includes all of you as well. Conferences can be divisive, they can be hostile events, but remember the people speaking are there with passion, conviction, because they believe that is the best way that their union should be run. Next week, I'm running the NUS Mature Students Conference, uh, where debates will be about ELQ cuts, financial support for mature students, and part-time students' fees. I don't know if any of that sounds familiar (laughs) to those of you in the room. We as a student movement have struggles ahead and barriers we must overcome. The attacks on our movement seem to be getting greater and greater, with a government that says it cares, yet has introduced a market in education with universities underspending on bursaries and widening participation to the tune of £24 million pounds and failing to give the money to the people who actually need it, the student, and with our teachers and lecturers undervalued and underpaid. As a movement, we've come under attack and it's time to start the fight back. The government cuts in ELQs LQs highlights exactly what we're dealing with, headline agendas and no substance or thought actually behind them. We hear the need for skills, but then we are told that you can only be skilled up to a point. Please have aspirations, but don't go any further than we want you to. (laughs) If you want to reskill and have more aspirations, it's you paying extortionate amounts and no support on the way. And let me tell you something, it is not on. I can't believe that I heard the Minister say that, um, and it was completely disingenuous, that NUS and ALSA, the Open University, making a mountain out of a molehill about ELQ cuts. The only thing I've got to say is shame on the Minister for that, and I think it's a real shame that he's left and can't hear and see the actual feeling in the room for that next motion. (laughs) We've seen a U-turn from Gordon Brown in the past week, and I think it's actually time that we were demanding another U-turn and saying no more tinkering, no more cuts reverse the flawed ELQ policy that you've introduced and give us back our education and value us here as students. Each and every one of you in this room can, does and will contribute to wider society with the skills and what you learn in your courses and you should be supported in that and not be hit in the pocket at every opportunity. The headlines may have been about paying £3,000 after you graduate and a new good financial package for full-time students, but what about the part-time student fees that are still up front? Where's the financial support? And why do we force individuals still to choose between doing the course they desperately want to do or going for the cheaper option because they're actually being priced out of their education? NUS will continue to work with all of our members and associate members such as yourselves to build a strong campaigning student movement because we have to stand up for each other and we have to stand up for all as we've just heard you know it's about partnership and it's about making sure that when there's an attack on be it a mature student who's part-time or be it a full-time undergraduate student that actually we're there supporting each other because there's one movement we are stronger than just being in smaller pockets. NUS's new education policy which I tu- touched on earlier means that we will be formidable opponents for any political party who tries to introduce a market in our education system we will proactively campaign for a fairer funding system, including for part time undergraduates, and we will take a pragmatic approach to the 2009 review. We are calling for funding to match the OECD average and not constantly be lagging behind. With lobbying, with local and regional action and with national demonstrations, we will not make any politician think they can just turn up and vote. We will ensure they are understand of student and public opinion, and that is no to markets in our education system. It's vital that we work together, both NUS and the Open University, in defending our students and making sure we tackle the key battles ahead because the student experience is key to each and every one of us, up and down our campuses and our colleges and everyone who's registered on the course. I wish you luck across the next two days and to a strong working relationship between our organisations for the year ahead. Thank you very much.